can grab your Bibles and turn to the 95th division of Psalm as we continue to worship our God. Psalm 95. So glad to see you all this morning. Psalm 95, as we take a break from our series in Corinthians, reflect on this psalm, tells us to come and to sing God's praise. Speak to us, Lord, humble us, Lord. Starting at verse 1, O come, let us sing to the Lord, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving, let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry ground. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had not seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Today we want to tag this text, Come and Sing God's Praise. Come and Sing God's Praise. You may be seated in the name of our Lord. Today's psalm technically has no inscription, meaning that no author took credit for writing it. However, we can attribute the psalm to King David because in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7, the writer of Hebrews attributes it to David. Psalm 93, Psalm 100 through 105 all celebrate God's complete and sovereign kingship over the entire world. They are all songs, poems, Pointing to God's greatness. In Psalm 95, the psalm that we just read, the psalmist is writing to Israel and telling them to give God the praises that he is due while warning them against a faithless heart. The psalmist is teaching Israel through music that sincere praise flows out of a faith-filled heart. In essence, the psalmist is saying, praise God and watch your heart. 
The praises of our mouth ought to match the devotion of our heart. This psalm is broken up into two main ideas. In verse 1 through 7, the psalmist invites his audience to worship and to sing praises to God. In verse 7b through verse 11, the psalmist warns Israel of their forefathers' failure to live by faith. The psalmist starts off in verse 1 giving a great invitation. Look at the text. He says, Oh, come. Oh, come. One gets the feeling of reading this text that this psalmist is extending an invitation of hope and an invitation of expectation. Oh, come, the psalmist says. And not only does he invite us to come in verse 1, he also invites us to come into the presence of the Lord in verse 2 as well as in verse 6. The psalmist is leading worship and inviting everyone to join him in expressing supreme gratitude to Yahweh. Now, some people have a problem with worship leaders who tell them to sing and encourage them to make a joyful noise. And after reading through the psalms this week, over and over, I conclude that most people would have had a problem in Jewish festival services because the Jews were constantly invited and even commanded to worship the Lord. The Psalms are filled with worship leaders and songs inviting and even commanding people, and not only people, but all creation to give God praise. We must forget about ourselves and join in with the Bible and the Psalms and exalt our King, the self-existing one. Verse 1 says, Oh, come, let us sing. Verse 2 says, Oh, come, let us sing songs of praise. The subject of singing is often ignored in our theology and preaching. But the scripture speaks of God's people singing consistently. I counted this week over 67 times in a song where the scripture invites and even commands us to sing. Therefore, I believe that God expects and wants us to sing to him consistently. And if, and that's a miracle in and of itself. When I think about my voice and my ability to sing, to know that God wants to hear from me and that he commands over 67 times in the Jewish worship services that all people sing praises to him, we ought to give God a praise, amen, for being so gracious. He says, sing to him. Singing praises to God is a normative response from God's children. And that's not just an Old Testament idea, it's also a New Testament idea, according to Ephesians chapter 5. The Bible tells us to sing hymns and songs and spiritual songs to one another. We ought to sing to the Lord, because the Lord, beyond and above anyone else, deserves to be sung to. Not only should our singing be consistent and regular, the text tells us that our singing should be congregational. The text says, let us sing. 
It doesn't say let me sing and you listen, but rather it said let us sing. Corporate worship is just that. It's corporate. It is to be inclusive. It is supposed to involve everyone who has been redeemed by the Lord. Have you ever went to give somebody a high five and they put up their hand to receive it? And just as you are about to give them a high five, they remove their hand and they fake you out? Well, I think that's kind of what happens most Sunday mornings. When we wake up and we put on our clothes to come to church and we get in our car and we drive down to the church house and we park our car in the parking lot and we walk through the doors and we speak and say, how you doing? I'm doing great. I'm blessed and highly favored. And then we come into the sanctuary and the worship leader gets up and begins to lead worship and the choir stands up to lead worship and they say, let us sing unto the Lord. And we sit down. It's like we're about to to give them a high five, but we just remove our hand and say, psych, I came to see you worship. The psalmist said, no, let us sing songs of praise. He is calling the congregation to sing. Not only should our singing be consistent, not only should it be congregational, but according to this text, our singing is commanded to be joyful. In a sister psalm, Psalm 100, it says in verse 1, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Verse 4, enter into his gates with thanksgiving. Into his courts with praise. The psalmist in Psalm 95 in verse 1 and verse 2 tells us twice to make a joyful noise. The psalmist is saying that we ought to sing to the Lord. And when we sing to the Lord, we ought to be elated. We ought to be ecstatic. We ought to be filled with thrill and blissful. Why? Because we are singing to our God. But sometimes it's hard to sing joyfully to the Lord because of our current situation. And because we, quite frankly, don't feel like it. But notice that the psalmist does not consider his audience feeling, nor does he consider his audience circumstances. I believe that we can sing joyfully to the Lord in spite of our pain and in spite of our feelings. When we understand that our pain has purpose and that God is not wasting our pain. But even through our pain, God is working all things together for the good. Isn't that what James says in James chapter 1 verse 2? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face or meet trials of various kinds. For the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If I could just tweak that verse just a little bit. Count it all joy. No, sing with all joy. My brothers and sisters, when you come into the house of God, why? Because God is using your pain to bring about steadfastness. What is steadfastness? Steadfastness is the ability to stay put, the ability to not lose your mind when you're going through your trial, the ability to persevere. Why? Because I know that my pain 
it has purpose. So I can come into the house of God and sing consistently. I can sing with the congregation and I can sing with joy. Not only does the psalmist tell us to sing joyfully, but he also tells us to sing noisily, sing loudly. He's exalting us and encouraging us to sing from our diaphragm and to sing and expand from our lungs. 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon says on this voice that we ought to sing with holy enthusiasm, making a sound which indicates our earnestness towards the Lord. When we sing, we ought to sing with a holy enthusiasm. We ought to sing with a earnestness. We can sing and shout and cheer earnestly for our football team because we identify with them and want them to win. How much more should we sing for a God who allowed his son to die the death that we deserve in order that we would have eternal life? Jay Goldingway, the author of Baker's Commentary, adds that this psalm's reputation to, to shouting underlines further that it is not enough for worship of Yahweh to be a heart attitude. He says, we are physical beings with voices. Heart praise is not praise by the whole person. And worship, as in other aspects of life, we naturally express ourselves with cries and shouts. It is difficult to imagine how there can be praise without these. If we can cheer joyfully for something else, we ought to be able to cheer joyfully for our God. Because he is a mighty, 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 mighty good God. Finally, we see throughout this whole of songs as we reflect on the psalmist telling us to sing praises to the Lord. We also learn in the psalms that God wants us to sing a new song. God wants us to sing a new song. And the next psalm over in Psalm 96 verse 1, the psalmist tells us to sing a new song unto the Lord. Psalm 33 verse 3, Psalm 96 verse 1, Psalm 98 verse 1, all tells us that we as the people of God ought to bring new praises to him. We ought to bring new songs to him. We appreciate and we love our old songs, those classic songs, but God constantly tells us that we ought to sing new songs. It doesn't mean that we abandon our old songs. It means that we should be working on some new songs. We can sing new songs because we are a new creation. We can sing new songs because we have received new grace and new mercy every single morning. We can sing new songs to God in anticipation of a new heaven and a new earth. According to Rick Warren in his book, The Purpose Driven Church, the Columbia Record Company once did a study and discovered that after a song is sung 50 times, people no longer think about the meaning of its lyrics. They begin to sing it off of routine. God doesn't want us to merely sing about him by routine. He wants us to be moved by the truths that we sing. So in verses 1 and 2, we see a theology of singing, really. We see a picture of what God wants us to do when we come together in the house of God. 
The psalmist is inviting us to sing songs of praise. He is inviting us to sing consistently, congregationally, joyfully, loudly, and freshly. But we also want to understand that the psalm has a, a even uh, a greater purpose. He grounds our singing in some deep realities. If we look at the text, we'll see that in verses 1 and 2, the, the psalmist gives us an exhortation to sing. But after the exhortation to sing, in verses 3 through 6, he grounds that exhortation to sing in reasons why we sing. He says, I, I'm not going to just have you out here making noise without telling you why we ought to make noise and why we ought to praise the Lord. So as we look at the text, he says, oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him which, with songs of praise. Why? For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry ground. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. The psalm gives us the first reason why we ought to sing deeply to the Lord. The psalmist says that the reason is, is that God is the supreme authority of the world. He is the supreme authority who actually created the world. The psalmist says we should praise God because he's a great God and a great king above all God. We sing loudly and joyfully and freshly to the Lord because he is great and because there is no one like him, no gods beside him. One of my favorite Old Testament stories comes from 1 Samuel chapter 5. And in that story, we see that the Philistines have captured the ark, the ark of God, which is Israel's most sacred and symbolic belonging. The Philistines then brings the ark of God into their God's home, Dagon. And they leave the ark of God there besides their God, Dagon. And the Bible says that they wake up early the next morning to come check on their God in the ark of the covenant. Only to find out that their God, Dagon, is laid face down before the ark of the covenant, which represents the presence of God. They mustered their strength together. They get Dagon to stand back up. They go back home and go about their day. They come back early the next morning only to find Dagon once again bowed face down on the ground in front of the Art of the Covenant. Only this time, Dagon's head and arms are cut off. The point of the story and what God was showing them is there is only one God. And he is a great God. He is the God of Israel. He is in complete control. The psalmist is reminding those who have gathered together to worship that when we sing to the Lord, we sing to the one who sits high and who looks low. 
the one who is incomparable. He is telling us and reminding us that when we come before the presence of God, we ought to set our idols down and get rid of them because there is no God that compares to our God. I wondered when I was reflecting on that story of Dagon, what it would be like to hear our little gods, our idols, if they could speak to us about our God. If our gods could tell us what they see and feel when they compare themselves to the one true God. I wondered what the God of technology would say if he could just talk to us a little bit about our God. I can see the God of technology saying, stop trying to be so connected to me and get connected to the one who is connected without being connected to anybody else. The God of technology would tell us to, to allow the voice of the Lord to pique our interest and not Siri. The God of technology would tell us to get connected to the one who is always accessible. The one whose screen never cracks. The one who has never having to have a updated operating system because he is and was and will always be. The God of technology will bow before him and say, you know what, God? You've got it all. Amen. You are faster than high speed Internet. Amen. You glow and are more majestic than any kind of ray or dimension that's on a television set. Why? Because he is a great God. God who never drops a call, a God that we can't just carry around in our pocket, but who carries us around. My grandmother used to say, he picked me up, he turns me around, he placed my feet on a solid ground. This psalmist is saying, we ought to come in the house of the Lord ready to praise this God. Then in verse 4 and 6, the psalmist reminds us that not only is God a great king, and not only does he have supreme authority, but this God is the maker of all things. Look at what the text says. He says, in his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry ground. He says, God deserves our highest praise because he is the maker of all things. You know, I like to cook a little. And there's one thing that I thought I could cook really well, and that was pancakes. Until I tasted my wife's pancakes. And the difference between my pancakes and my wife's pancakes is that I cook pancakes and she makes pancakes. See, I take the biscuit, and I just add a little water, and making pancakes for me is just making sure it's brown on all sides and flipping it over. But not Little Miss Muffin. My wife has to make the pancakes from scratch, and then she puts her own little twist in it, and it tastes completely different. And when my kids, if they were to taste my pancakes, Versus mama's pancakes, they would know that mama's pancakes are great. Well, there's a difference between us and God. See, we may cook and we may make, but the Bible says God creates. The Bible says in the beginning, God created the heaven and earth. See, God didn't just make the heaven and earth. He created the heaven and earth. 
he took no materials and called materials to be. And then he took the materials and made the heavens and earth. The psalmist says that everything is in the hands of the Lord. The depths of the sea belongs to God. The heights of the mountains belongs to God. It says that God created the world with his own hands, the dry lands, using an anthropomorphic term, giving God human-like qualities, knowing that God doesn't have hands because he is everywhere at the same time. The psalmist is trying to relate to us and say, we should praise God because he is the creator and sustainer of the entire world. He deserves our praise because he's a great God and because he is a great king. This truth leads the psalmist in verse 5, excuse me, in verse 6 to give another invitation. Look at what he says, oh come, another invitation. Oh come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the make the Lord our maker. The psalmist here gives us a, another, another invitation, but this time it's not an invitation to sing and to shout. This time it's an invitation to worship, an invitation to listen, an invitation to bow down. Well, the first invitation is verbal. This invitation is physical. He's saying, I, I want you to come into my presence and I want you to lay prostrate before me. I want you to bow your knees before me. You know, I'm a, a Baptist. You're a Baptist at heart. And one thing I love about the Baptist tradition traditionally is that we hold firm to scriptural convictions and great theology. But I'm hoping that as a church, we can become Baptocostal. Baptocostal. That's a mixture between Baptist and Pentecostal. And now, I, like I said, I love our theology, but I think that we can steal something from Pentecostals. Because our Pentecostal brothers and sisters, when they come to worship, they come to worship. They put their whole body into what they do. If you've ever been to a Pentecostal worship service, you're liable to see them lay prostrate before the ground and to worship the Lord. The psalmist is saying, listen, I understand that you may be conservative, but I'm inviting you to lose yourself in the midst of worship and to bow down prostrate before the Lord and to give him worship or supreme worth. The psalmist wants to see Israel's mouth praise the Lord as well as his body praise the Lord. When we prostrate ourselves, when we get on our knees to worship God, we are saying, God, I surrender. God, I am low and you are high. God, I understand that we are in your majestic and glorious presence. And in your presence, you are on display and not us. The psalmist says, oh, come, let us bow down. Let us bow down and worship. The Lord. It's amazing. If you ever watch a Muslim pray, how they get on their knees and they do their prayer ritual. And they get back up and they get back down and they, they do that ritual again. They are laying prostrate before the Lord. And it's interesting that they can do that while worshiping a false God and not worshiping in truth. We, the people of God, every now and then, 
ought to be willing to get on our knees and to get on our face like Jacob and to say, this is the house of God. Let me worship the Lord. We every now and then ought to forget about our neighbors being around us and put our face where our seat is and begin to cry out to the Lord. Worthy is the Lamb of God. We need you, Lord. The psalmist gives an invitation to praise and an invitation to worship because the psalmist sees and knows and believes that God is the supreme authority and creator of all things. But in seven, he gives us another deep reason to sing and deep reason to worship. He says that we ought to worship because we have a special relationship with God. Look at your Bibles. He says, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And even though we don't know who wrote this song, even though they, there's no inscription on the song we believe is David, we know that this song sounds a lot like Psalm 100. Psalm 100, enter into, make a joyful noise unto the Lord all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that he is the Lord our God and it is he who has made us and not we ourselves for we are his sheep, <laughs> his people and the sheep of his pastor. The psalmist says the same thing that we ought to praise God because to the Jews he was saying because we are in a special relationship with God. We are in a covenant relationship with God. The writer of Hebrews chapter 3 uses the same text when writing to Hebrew Christians and he uses it to them. So as a New Testament Christian, we know that we are under the covenant of God as well and we are his people and the sheep of his pastor. We ought to praise God because we are in a special relationship with God. God has revealed himself to us in a special way. I find it interesting that throughout the scriptures that God often uses this analogy of a sheep and a shepherd when relating to our relationship with him. This this analogy is constantly used, not only in the Old Testament and Psalm 23 and, and in other Psalms, but it's also used in John chapter 10, where Jesus tells us that he is the good shepherd. Why does the psalmist and why does the Bible constantly use this imagery of a sheep and his shepherd? Well, I believe it's because of the picture that it gives. Sheep are completely dependent on their shepherd. And quite frankly, sheep are not the deepest and most intellectual of creatures. They're quite ignorant. If, if you will allow me to say it, they're quite dumb. The psalmist is reminding us that compared to God, one of the reasons we ought to praise God is because we are dependent on God. If it's not for the Lord, we will not eat. Because he is the one who leads us to green pastures. He is the one who protects us from wolves and from sheep. He is the one who leads us into all truth. The psalmist says that we ought to praise God because he is the shepherd and we are the sheep. And if being called dependent and dumb makes you feel uncomfortable, then I'm sorry. Because the fact of the matter is when we compare ourselves to God, we are dependent, helpless, and pretty dumb. Isn't that what Job had to find out? And Job, in the store, he had to really see 
himself for who he was. Job had made a good living for himself. The Bible says that he was quite successful and quite religious. But the Bible says that God had to break Job on down in order to build Job on up. And as the story of Job goes on, we learn that Job was a little bit self-righteous. And he thought that he could question God. Maybe it's because he thought that at some level he was on God's level. But God shows up in chapter 39 and he reminds Job that I am the potter, you are the clay, that I am the shepherd, you are the sheep. He begins to ask Job some really deep questions to which Job begins to surrender and say, what, Lord, you know what? You know all things. Sometimes God has to get us to a place where we recognize that we are dependent on him and we're nothing but sheep, but we have a loving shepherd. And every time we come together in the house of worship, we come as sheep, not people who are strong, but people who are broken. We come as sheep, not as people who have it all together, but for people who need God to help us to get it together. We come as sheep, recognizing that everything we have belongs to the Lord. Psalmist tells us that we ought to sing consistently. We ought to sing confidently. We ought to sing joyfully. We ought to sing noisily. We ought to sing freshly. And then he says we also ought to sing deeply because God is the supreme authority and the maker of all things. And he has allowed us through the blood of Jesus to enter into a special covenant where he is our shepherd and we are his sheep. But then the psalmist takes a a sharp turn, a real sharp turn, and he begins to go from singing praises to the Lord to warning Israel of their forefathers' failure to live by faith. The psalmist here has written a psalm with a double purpose, One is to exhort and encourage. The other is to teach and admonish. The writer of the psalm has written both as a worship leader and now as a prophet, warning Israel, the people of God, of their forefathers' rebellion in the wilderness and how they suffered unnecessarily for their lack of faith in God. They did not enter into rest. They did not enter into Canaan because of their unbelief. In Hebrews chapter 3, the author of Hebrews uses this exact text to warn the Jewish Christians of their hearts, which are slowly going astray from Christ back to legalism and the law. Here, the psalmist points to his congregants back to that wilderness experience, back to the days where His children, Israel, turned their back on the Lord. And we know that Israel was in the wilderness at a place called sin. And while they were in the wilderness, in this place, the wilderness of sin, the Bible teaches us that they became once again faithless. The Bible says that there was nothing to drink. And rather than trust the Lord, they began to complain about it. And they begin to heckle Moses about it. The Bible says that God got upset 
And why did the why did the Lord get upset in Exodus chapter 17 at Israel's unbelief? The, the Lord got upset at their unbelief because by now they should have known that God was testing them and that he was going to come through. Could God not give them water if he had actually split the Red Sea, the water, and allowed them to walk on to dry ground and to be freed from the Egyptians? Yes, he could. So once again, God tests them in the wilderness of sin by allowing them to go a little thirsty to see if they would cry out in faith or in fear. The psalmist is reminding us that it is important when we come together to worship that we are not just giving God the praises of our lift, but that we are giving him the faith of our heart. The Bible is warning us that it is a dangerous thing to serve God with mouth service and not heart service. He wants our heart to be devoted just like he wants our mouth to be devoted. In the wilderness, Moses sees God perform a great miracle as water comes gushing from a rock. And the Bible says that Moses renames the wilderness Massa and Meribah. And he got to see God provide in a special way. The psalmist is encouraging the children of Israel to give thanksgiving to the Lord, but also to give their hearts to the Lord, to not worship God half-heartedly, and to not just say things, but to believe the things that we say. When we come into the house of God to worship, we want to make sure that our hearts have not gone astray, that we are trusting in the Lord with all of our heart and not leaning to our own understanding, that we are rooted in the fact that we believe that God is who he says he is, that he is the sovereign creator of the universe and maker of all things, that he is our shepherd and he cares about us deeply. In this text, we see that God warns them by telling them today. Look at your text. Today, he says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah. Today, he says, he says, as we sing this song today, make sure that your heart is not being hardened towards the Lord. Make sure that you are not allowing unbelief to rule your heart, to rule your thought life, to rule your affections. He says, today, respond to the Lord. If you are here today and you cannot sing God the praises that he's due because you are living in unbelief, I want to encourage you not to leave this sanctuary until you have allowed God to become your shepherd. Because when the Lord is your shepherd, you can sing in the midst of the storm. Because when the Lord is your shepherd, you can shout in spite of your situation. Because when you see how much the Lord cares for you, you can praise him in the midst of your storm. When you set your eyes on Jesus and realize that Jesus lived a life that you could not live and he substituted himself on the cross and died in your place and rose on the third day so that you could have victory, you then can have joy. And I'm not talking about happiness. I'm talking about joy. Happiness is the 
dependent on your circumstances or what happens. Joy is dependent on what Jesus has promised and said he would do. What I love about this text is in verse 2 what the psalmist does. He starts us off very early by letting us know that the person that we sing to, the person that we worship is the rock of our salvation. The rock of our salvation. What did the psalmist mean by the rock of our salvation? That word rock can mean boulder, it can mean cliff, it can mean cave. It's a picture of a safe place. It's a picture of a safe haven. But here I believe that the psalmist calls God the rock of his salvation in light of verses 7b through verses 11 because he wants to remind this new generation that God that we sing to, the Lord that we worship, is the Lord who allowed water to come out of a rock, which means that he is the one who meets our deepest needs. He is the one who meets our deepest thirst. He is the one who satisfies us. Paul says that the rock that was struck all the way back in Exodus was Jesus. Jesus is the rock of my salvation. Jesus is my way out of no way. Jesus is my lily in the valley. Jesus is my bridge over troubled water. Jesus is the one who provides me what I need when I need it. Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come unto me. He said, I will satisfy them. Jesus is the rock that we ought to stand on and the rock that we ought to drink from, the rock that we ought to sing about, the rock that we ought to exalt, the rock that we ought to depend on. Jesus is the one who went up on a rock on Calvary's mountain and who died for us. Jesus deserves both our lips and our hearts. He deserves both our singing and our worship. He deserves our shouts and our laying prostrate before him. He deserves it because he and he alone can satisfy. He is living water, flowing water. Deep stream. Do you know? Do you know Jesus? Do you sing to this Jesus with your whole heart? Do you sing to him joyfully? Do you sing to him noisily? Do you sing to him regularly? Do you sing to him congregationally? Do you sing to him faithfully? As we come upon thanksgiving, may we not just give God thanks with our lips, but give him thanks with our hearts by trusting in the promises of God. Let's pray. Father, we